0: But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. So Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back, and he fell down there and died on the spot. So it was that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died stood still. Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner, and the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Amma, which is before Gia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? And Joab said, As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bethron, and they came to Mahanaim. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, uh, there were missing of David's servants 19 men and Asahel. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men 360 men who died. Then they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker." Father, we thank you for this, your word. It is our desire not just to understand it, but to have our lives transformed by it, to live in light of it, to glorify you through it. And we pray that you would uh, continue to receive our worship as we respond to this, your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week I briefly alluded to the Hatfield and McCoy uh, feud, and today I'd like to give you a little bit more background on that feud because I think it illustrates uh, some of the dynamics that go into the conflict that we're going to be looking at today. It was one of 13 of America's uh, worst and bloodiest uh, feuds on record. And uh, actually, there were some worse ones in Texas. Everything seems to be a little bit grander in Texas, doesn't it? But uh, some of those feuds really started with small things like uh, an argument in public that hurt somebody's pride. Uh, one of them started because uh, there was a, a uh, run uh, for the office of sheriff, And the sheriff who had been in there forever, he and his family and his friends were really offended by this upstart who would uh, try to uh, run against him. Uh, At least two of the feuds began because friends were fighting on different sides of the Civil War and uh, were really upset with uh, the other uh, family. In fact, some people believe that this is where the the Hatfield-McCoy... of uh, feud began. Uh, some people say, no, it didn't really begin there because there were uh, southerners on both sides of that family feud. Uh, some say it began during a uh, a quarrel, during an election uh, debate. Um, another person said, no, it really began uh, because of a hog, a McCoy hog, that wandered onto Hatfield property, and they never returned it. But I think all of those things really were contributing to simmering underneath a bloodless feud uh, that eventually erupted into quite a bloody feud. But let's begin at the beginning. Asa McCoy joined the Yankees to fight against the South, and to the Hatfields, Asa might as well have stabbed a knife into their chest and twisted the knife some. Now nobody knows for sure who killed Asa when he came back from the battle. Um, at first they thought maybe it was the, the head of the Hatfield clan, but he was sick in bed and had a good alibi. And uh, there was another particular Hatfield that was part of the Wildcats gang that they thought maybe had uh, killed him, but nobody knows for sure uh, who, uh, who did that. <clears throat> the really tense times, though, came... Thirteen years later, when a hog strayed onto one of the Hatfield properties, and this guy figured, hey, if this hog's eating on my property, it's my uh, hog. But when the McCoys uh, wanted them to return the hog, they claimed it was theirs. And when the McCoys took the, the, the Hatfield member to court, where a Hatfield judge was presiding... Uh, There was a a guy by the name of Bill Staten who was actually related to both of those families. He testified on behalf of the Hatfields and said, hey, I saw, and he perjured himself doing this, but I saw the Hatfields uh, make the marks on that sow. This sow definitely belongs to the Hatfields. Well, this blatant perjury made two McCoys so mad that they hunted down that false witness and they killed him. There were a lot of other things that made for bad blood between them for example uh, rosanna mccoy began to court johnsy hatfield on the sly and jonesy later ditched the now pregnant rosanna and married her cousin and you can imagine the offense that the mccoy family had as rosanna comes back as she is ditched immediately after that during an election day dispute ellison hatfield got into a fight with rosanna's brothers ended up getting killed Well, Rosanna's brothers were then immediately lynched by a Hatfield-led mob. Even though they were in the custody of the law, they took them out of the lawkeeper's hands and uh, killed them. And over the next 11 years, this feud took many lives from both families, including a nighttime raid on a McCoy cabin where they killed everybody except for the father who managed to, to escape. It was just a brutal killing. Supposedly the feud died down after several men were tried in court, and uh, they were executed, including a number of uh, Hatfield people. And so there were no more killings after 1901, but that did not mean the feud did not uh, had stopped. There were still simmering tensions that were under the surface. Uh, and I think we just need to realize there could be bloodless feuds where people have grudges against each other and uh, do things nastily to each other. In May of 1976, it finally ended with Jim McCoy and Willis Hatfield, the last two survivors of the original family, uh, shaking hands in a public ceremony where they dedicated a monument to six of uh, the survivors. So We're not talking about ancient history, we're talking 1976 when this thing was finally put to rest. In February 11, 1984, Jim McCoy died at the age of 99, and he said he no longer bore any grudges to any of the Hatfields, and to prove it, he asked that uh, he be buried when he died in the Hatfield funeral home in Toller, Kentucky. So that's the remarkable end uh, to almost a century of two families despising each other and doing all kinds of evil against each other. And it's just a remarkable thing how long bitterness can go on. But that's the nature of bitterness. Hebrews 12, verse 15 says, if you don't deal with bitterness, it will not only poison your heart, it'll tend to poison the hearts of everybody that you associate with. It's just something that is uh, contagious. So Even though it wasn't the worst of the American feuds, it is the most famous, and it illustrates the dynamics of the conflict that we're going to be looking at today. However, that classic American feud doesn't hold a candle to the hatred that existed between Judah and Israel, which they were up in the north. Uh, Last week, we saw that the feud that began in this chapter produced inward resentment and grudges for 334 years, all the way up to the time that northern Israel was cast by God into exile by the Assyrians. And we looked at one example of that simmering resentment. Uh, we saw that Shimei was still bitter over the events that happened on this day 28 years later. In chapter 16 of this book, Shimei sees David and his men escaping from Absalom, escaping from Jerusalem. And what Shimei does is he, he's uh, kind of trotting along beside uh, these armies throwing dirt and throwing stones and yelling insults and curses at David and saying, you bloody man, you bloody man. Even though David had not authorized this event, he still had that bitterness poisoning him against anything and everything that was connected uh, with uh, the south. And so there were obviously bad feelings that have been simmering under the surface for the past 28 years. And to me, this shows that time does not heal all wounds. That is absolutely false. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that heals wounds, and it comes through repentance and through forgiveness, and as Rodney said, through the covering of Christ's blood. Uh, There was uh, here a demonic feud spirit that kept the wounds festering and kept the grudges growing. And it started, as we saw last week, in verse 16, when 24 men needlessly died. Uh, I think last week you got the picture of how emotionally disturbing that scene would have been. If you were there... I think the event that happened there with those 24 men would have been burned into your memory. It would be hard to forget the the sickening event uh, that had happened. It was a ghastly scene, and the text says that at least Abner found it to be entertaining. That was the ghastliest part of the story. Uh, We saw last week that of all the interpretations, the most likely is that it was a gladiatorial competition for Abner's entertainment. But on any of the interpretations, it's clear that the Hebrew word for compete in verse 14 is literally to have fun, to have laughter, to have pleasure. Hey, let's have some fun. Let's watch some guys kill each other. That's basically what Abner uh, was saying. And some have suggested that Abner's cavalier attitudes toward the lives of those 24 men is what made Asahel so angry that he was going to hunt down and try to kill Abner even if he died in the trying. Now, they say that's probably what was motivating Abner. In any case, it's quite certain that the battle raged is a direct result of those 24 men dying. The so in verse 17 would indicate a cause and effect relationship. It says, so there was a fierce battle that day. Now, if there's one thing that verse 16 did, it galvanized Joab's men into doing everything they could to topple Abner. If anybody had tried to stop that war uh, through diplomacy after verse 16, I think he would have been shouted down. I think he would have had a hard time uh, after verse 16 uh, bringing peace. Uh, there was just too much emotion. And so that's point number one. Emotional baggage can lead people to b- blind rage just like it did with Shimei, and just like it did with these men on that day. Neither Joab nor Abner were the kind of people who repented very easily over any of the bad actions that they engaged in, and yet that is the essence of what can cover over these kinds of things. It needs to be repentance. There needs to be forgiveness. It's the only thing that can keep emotional baggage from getting transferred from generation to generation. And so if in your conflicts you keep finding the same ancient hurts coming up and stirring up your emotions and getting you angry at somebody again, it's a sign that there's danger. There's danger in, in your life. If like Shimei, some emotional baggage can arouse your anger at somebody 28 years later, you've got some talking you need to do uh, with the Lord. And we'll see later that healing can only come through forgiveness and through the kinds of positive proactive actions that uh, ver- uh, Romans chapter 12 talks about. Okay, a second principle can be seen in the second half of verse 17. And the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. But did that settle anything? No. Chapter 3, verse 1 says they continued to fight for a long time, and elsewhere we discover what that long time was. It was seven and a half years. And so just like the contest in verse 16 did not settle anything in in the eyes of the followers of Abner, their defeat in Uh, verse 17 did not settle anything either in terms of who was right and uh, who was wrong. When you have your own personal squabbles, you need to realize that winning the argument, in fact, resoundingly winning the argument and just your wit and your wisdom has just humiliated your opponent, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to win them to the truth. Uh, And I think we need to to uh, realize this. You've Beaten him, but you have not won him. And David will use completely different approach in the next chapter—an approach of conciliation. And we're going to be seeing Joab; he's continually complicating matters uh, for David. But David's methods were geared to lasting peace. Now, as I was reading summaries of thir- the thirteen worst feuds in American history, I was trying to get some sermon illustrations uh, from that. Uh, one of the things that struck me was that just because one side took somebody and the other side to a civil court did not settle the feud, not at all. The side that lost in court, they they just were all the more angry, and they thought, if we're not getting justice in in the court, we're going to take justice into our own hands. And so wars are not win-win situations. Courts are not win-win situations. In fact, often both sides lose even if one side is technically won. They lose time. They lose energy. They lose money. They lose friends when they've gone through a protracted court battle. Everybody becomes the loser. Now, are wars sometimes necessary? I say, absolutely, yes. Are court cases sometimes necessary? And we'd say, yes, of course they are, but they should be a last resort. And I would say, even in the church court, they should be, the church court should be a last uh, resort. The emphasis in Scripture is on the first stages of Matthew 18, where the elders aren't even involved. We don't even know about the conflict, where you are the ones who are trying to resolve this conflict. It's God's people who are competent for this kind of counsel. And so you may be the wise man or the wise woman that uh, Second Samuel later on will, will talk about that helps win people and not just uh, win the argument. Uh, this was the function that Sam Houston took in the regulator-moderator feud in Texas that cost so many lives. Uh, he sought to understand what was driving both sides tried to understand where are the hurts, where are the grudges, what are the kinds of things that are keeping these people separate. And then he tried to use diplomacy and was successful in bringing lasting peace there. Now, if he had tried to force it, I don't think it would have worked. And David did much the same in the upcoming chapters. But in family feuds and feuds between friends, there are no winners. Usually both sides end up losing something. And I'm going through these points because the better you can understand the dynamics of conflict, the better you're going to be prepared to be a peacemaker. Okay, the third principle that I see is that certain people are more prone to stirring up trouble than others. That's a no-brainer, right? But I think we need to understand this principle if we're going to have a realistic plan for making peace. Now, if David had been here, he might have been able to negotiate something that would have benefited both sides. We saw he certainly would not have engaged in that conflict between those 24 men. Uh, he, he wasn't always able to do that, but his heart was geared toward peacemaking. In Psalm 120, verse 7, he said, I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. And because they were for war, he frequently had to fight. But David's first instinct was to be a peacemaker, to, to find peaceful solutions. And in stark contrast, and I tell you, in the upcoming chapters, you're going to see it's such stark contrast, Joab, in fact, all, all three men that are mentioned in verse 18 here, their first default position is to cut people's heads off. It just seems over and over in the rest of 2 Samuel, this was their default position. And since the phrase, the sons of Zeruiah, later becomes a negative phrase that is always used anytime they have frustrated David, any time that they have caused conflict themselves, uh, the wording of the second half of verse 18 is quite deliberate. It's indicating that they were part of the problem here. So look at verse 18. Now the three sons of Zeruiah were there. Joab, and Abishai, and Asahel. Those three brothers were David's nephews. Uh, They were the sons of David's sister Zeruiah. And I think that it's mentioning them being sons of Zeruiah, the mother, rather than the normal way of saying they're sons of the dad because they were chips off the old block and the old block was not the dad, they're chips off their mom. She was a piece of work. the way that David uses this phrase later on in this book, it's clear she was a controversialist, incredibly controversial. In any case, these three were constantly bringing needless conflict. So I want you to take a look at the chart in your outlines. And I adapted this chart from Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. I just made some minor changes because, for example, killing is not always murder, as he labels it. Sometimes it is a necessity. But I just wanted you to take a a quick look at that because I think this chart shows why David's approaches tended to be better and why David was so frustrated with his three nephews, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. If you take a look at the top line of rounded text with the arrows that are going like this to the top of the chart, the closer to the top of the chart you get, the more you are maintaining both relationships and values at personal cost. Now, no matter where you are on this chart, there's going to be cost. You cannot escape from cost when you're dealing with uh, conflict. And I mention this because there's the tendency to not do the right thing because we say, hey, it's costly to do the right thing. No, there's going to be costliness for doing the wrong thing as well. There's cost no matter where you go. But um, what this chart shows is that the, the closer to the top of the chart you go, At personal cost, you're seeking to the best of your ability to maintain both your goals and maintain your relationships in the conflicts. And I believe David was a master of that, and we'll especially see that in the upcoming chapters. On the other hand, the closer to the bottom of the left side of the chart that you slide, the more you are avoiding conflict at any cost. Some people just clam up, or they flee, or like a dog, you know, who's crying uncle, they just roll over. I, 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 you know, and they just, they don't get into the conflict, even though God would call them uh, to be confronting sins that need to be confronted. The more you slide to the right hand of the chart, the more you're seeking to win the conflict at any cost, even the cost of a relationship. And so people who are on the right hand side of that chart, wow, they end up losing all of their friends. That was the case with Joab. At the end of his life, he didn't have any friends. He, He was a lonely man. There's always a cost no matter where on this chart you were at, and what I would urge you to do is find the cost and the solution that best glorifies God. And we really need to be honest about where we're on that chart, because we can deceive ourselves so easily. Some people think, oh yeah, I collaborate, I'm negotiating, you said you're not negotiating, you're hammering that other person with your words, the sword of your tongue. And other people say, Yeah, I'm, I'm the negotiator. I'm, we're, we're, I'm a peacemaker here. You're not being a peacemaker because you're always rolling over. You're always giving in to sin. You're, you're never confronting when God sometimes calls us to confront. So even though any place on this chart is a legitimate place to be, you need to ask God, Is that where I should be right now? But at least that chart shows you the full range of options. Now, it's obvious in this chapter and in the upcoming chapter that the three sons of Zeruiah, as well as Abner, are quick to go to confrontation and to killing in order to settle almost any dispute. And I'm going to use Shimei as an illustration of this. When Shimei was cursing David, throwing dirt at him, in chapter 16, here's what Abishai says. Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please, let me go over and take off his head. Okay, so he was quick to use ugly words. This is a conflict with the, the sword of the mouth, a demeaning words, this dead dog. But he was also very quick to use a literal sword, a sword, physical confrontation. Now, David immediately responds, "'What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? "'So let him curse.'" So there is the peacemaking coming out. And I want you to notice that David does not shy away from confrontation of sin. In order to avoid worse problems and trouble, David has to spiritually confront the sin of Abishai. So being a peacemaker does not mean you're always a dog who rolls over and gives in to everything that the opponent says. David uh, later wins the battle. He comes back to Jerusalem in chapter 19. Shimei begs for forgiveness Of David and for throwing dirt and rocks at him for cursing him and Abishai who's obviously still holding on to grudges said once again shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed so even with the previous rebuke he wants to use the sword so he he's obviously upset with David for being too soft He's always wanting to be on the right-hand side of the chart. And David shows his peacemaking heart again when he responds, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should be adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? He was saying, You guys are just like your mom. You're always holding grudges, and it doesn't do any good. Now, David did not hold onto, onto grudges. But uh, uh, he knew grudges always caused trouble. But by calling Abishai and Joab his adversaries, he's saying, Hey guys, you're making life difficult for me. Sometimes God's people can make life more difficult for the leaders of the church than the world does. And um, if your first impulse is to respond with ugly words, even to go on a, uh, the attack, you've got one of the elements of the various famous feuds in america including the the feuds between the hatfields and the mccoys if you always feel that urge to get even ask god for a better way romans 12 gives you a number of better ways that actually bring healing believe me if you start actually practicing romans chapter 12 paul's homework is tough it makes you swallow your pride it is very very difficult Now, if you're a son of Zeruiah, ask God, Lord, please change my heart. Make me a peacemaker. And the book I would recommend that you read is Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. It is a marvelous book. And if you already are a peacemaker, I want you to take a cue from this passage, and in your planning for bringing resolution, don't let the sons of Zeruiah do all the talking. They're going to undo all of the good that you've been doing in trying to bring reconciliation. Part of peacemaking is understanding where people are at on this war-peace continuum and uh, letting that knowledge guide your strategies. Okay, the second half of verse 18 introduces us to Asahel. He's a man who was swift of foot, not too swift of mind. It says, And Asahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle he must have been incredibly fast because Josephus, the Jewish historian, says he could outrun a horse. That's hard for me to imagine. I don't think there's any man alive today that could outrun a horse. But in any case, this was an asset for Asahel, a huge asset. But if you do not learn the self-control, the inward patience and mercy and kindness that David had to learn your physical assets are going to get you in trouble just like his physical assets got him into trouble. Uh, Some people's physical assets are their good looks. Uh, For some, it's their ability to talk. They can talk you into the ground. They can win every argument. For other people, their physical assets are their strength. If they can't win an argument, they'll wrestle you to the mat, right? And, um, and, And so the point is, God has given you some physical assets and Every asset you have needs to flow through the cross of Christ. You need to exercise it uh, in light of the gospel. Point five says some people can be too fixated on solving the problem. They cannot stand the tension of having any I's undotted, any T's uncrossed, any problems in the family unresolved. They just got to get in there and mess with it, okay? They they keep badgering and badgering, trying to fix problems that really are not their problems to fix. Verse 19 says, So Asahel pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn to the right hand or to the left from following Abner. Though Asahel was fast, uh, this young man was not... Uh, anywhere near the match of the more seasoned uh, and older uh, warrior uh, Abner. And so pursuing Abner alone was really madness. And there were plenty of other people that Asahel could have uh, tackled, but he was fixated on one problem. He would not let it go. It was sort of like a bulldog. You know, once they grab on, they they just can't think about anything else. That's all they're going to be uh, dealing with. And in personal conflicts, this can definitely be a problem. And you might be the person to tell that other person, look, you're being just like Asahel. You've got to just let this one go. This is not your problem to fix. I've witnessed this, not in literal wars, but I've certainly witnessed this in wars of words. Uh, I've seen people destroy their families, tear down their families by being fixated on an unwinnable issue that just grates on them, and they just won't leave it alone. Uh, They may not be warring with a sword, but they're warring with words, and they nag and they nag until an eruption happens, and neither side wins. So if you see it as your responsibility to fix everything in that other person's life, they're going to perceive you as a relentless enemy, not as a friend. And it's important to ask God, which are the issues, Lord, you want me to tackle? Which are the issues you want love to cover over and just wait patiently for you to sanctify that person? And which are the issues I should just let somebody else tackle? I think this a, it's a question we need to ask ourselves. Point six gives the obvious observation that people can take on more than they have bargained for. To use another expression, uh, they bite off more than they can chew. And that's in verses 20 through 21. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Asahel? He answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and lay hold on one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. Now Abner gives him one more warning after this, but Asahel wanted to pick a fight that was over his head. And in a similar fashion, there are Christians who pick fights with the IRS or pick fights with some government agency, and everybody knows this is not a winnable war. And they end up losing everything. In fact, I have a a friend who very literally lost everything. He lost his business, he lost his home, lost all of his finances, he lost his family. His family finally bailed out, and it was all because he was so fixated on winning this battle with the IRS. He was not going to give in on that. Uh, On the charts, he was pursuing his goal of winning against the IRS at the loss of relationships. Keep in mind, there's always going to be some kind of a cost in resolving uh, conflicts. You cannot escape the cost, but you can certainly pick which costs and which solutions are going to best glorify God. There are children who will fight with parents, or they'll fight the system knowing full well they cannot win, but there's something in them that just doesn't care. They don't care how many times they get beaten, right? There's a defiance there that is self-destructive, and I think many times it is a demonic uh, defiance. Now, in one sense, you can admire the courage of some of the men in the American feuds. Uh, They seem like they were just bold as lions, but I really think it's a counterfeit courage. Is it really courage to send a six-year-old into a government school to be a missionary, or is it forcing that child to be an Asahel? More times than not, it will be the school that will win the conflict of worldviews. And so such a parent is giving his child more than he bargained for. Now, that is not to say that there aren't times that God calls uh, a David to take on a Goliath. Obviously there are. There's exceptions to the rule that I'm talking about here. But make sure it's God who is calling you to that and not pride and not, uh, you know, thirst for revenge or anger. This man took on more than he bargained for. Point seven, Abner himself feels that this is a no-win situation. Verse 22, So Abner said again to Asahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? Now, the last phrase is a really interesting one. How then could I face your brother Joab? It shows that he had been holding open the possibility of working with Joab in the future. Uh, In his mind, at least one of the options that he was toying with was making an alliance with David, putting David on the throne, working with Joab. But once he killed Asahel, Abner realized that option would be closed forever and he would have no choice but to continue fighting indefinitely, even if it was not in his best interest. And the reason he knew that, he just knew Joab too well. Joab held onto grudges. He knew if he killed Joab's brother, it was all over. He had only one option left to him. And so sadly... Asahel's fixation on killing Abner forced Abner's hand and guaranteed that the feud would last for another seven and a half years. Neither side benefited. Abner's win over Asahel was a Pyrrhic win. A P-Y-R-R-H-I-C. A Pyrrhic win is a win. Okay, you win the battle, but the end result is so disastrous you're way, way worse off afterwards than you were beforehand. And I think that was clear the case here. The individual battle with Asahel was a pyrrhic win because it didn't benefit Abner at all. Well, he saved his life, but it closed off so many options. And the, the win of Joab's army did not benefit him because the way it was won, it just made an endless war, seven and a half years of war. Now, it was Abner who had the, the ability to see the bigger picture, better than Asahel, But he didn't have the character to avoid the fight in the first place. And we got to have both in place. Okay, point eight deals with the dilemma that even legitimate self-defense can sometimes guarantee continuing hatred. Uh, We see it in several of America's most famous blood feuds. Uh, We definitely see it in the planned revenge of Joab for what happened in verse 23. Let's go ahead and read that however he refused to turn aside therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back and he fell down there and died on the spot so it was that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died stood still knowing the potential fury of their general Joab the people didn't quite know what to do so they just stopped at this grisly scene of Asahel lying there on the ground. They stopped and they waited for Joab. I think they had a sinking feeling. This was not going to be as short of a war as they had hoped that it would be, and uh, it kind of took the wind out of their sails. Now, some commentators believe that Abner's use of the blunt end of the spear shows that he was not trying to kill Asahel. Uh, they think that this may have simply been an attempt to wound Asahel, to maybe knock the breath out of him, and... Um, You know, makes sense, given what I've said. But the fact that the blunt end of that spear went all the way through Asahel's body shows the incredible strength of Abner, even with a backhanded uh, thrust. Or it might show Asahel's speed, you know, in coming into that blunt end. Or maybe Abner missed where he was aiming at. We don't know. But if indeed Abner uh, did not intend to kill um, uh, Asahel... This legitimate self-defense guaranteed the hatred of Joab. It guaranteed Abner's eventual death at the hands of Joab. And I think that's important to realize. Even legitimate self-defense can sometimes guarantee our doom. Now, in this case, as I said, it was unavoidable. Uh, This chapter, I I don't think, presents Asahel as being at fault in defending his life. David certainly does not blame Asahel in the next chapter. But then David was reasonable. Joab was not. And um, I think um, David's ability uh, to swallow... I think basically this passage illustrates how important it is to make sure that when we engage in such an act, it's, it's a last resort. Too often people go on the attack simply because their pride has been hurt. So the ability to swallow pride for the sake of peace is a sign of incredible strength, and we're going to definitely see that with David in chapter 16. That's a marvelous passage on self-constraint. David was willing to lose the argument to Shimei's verbal and physical abuse in chapter 16, and I think Abner showed some self-restraint here. He didn't want to kill Asahel, and so if you look in your outlines there, I've included a second chart that can help you to analyze the situations that you're in just like David did and to some degree like uh, Abner did here just like the previous chart this one has the dual concerns of seeking to preserve your goals and seeking to preserve the relationship so that's the arrows on the left and the arrows on the bottom or arrow Uh, if you can achieve both you're likely going to be in the upper right hand corner Okay, these arrows are both taking you up in that upper uh, right-hand corner of collaboration. And obviously, collaboration takes more work than avoidance or accommodation, but it's the ideal. It's what David sought to practice in the next chapter. There are times, though, when the godly thing to do can be absolutely anywhere on this chart. It's just like the previous chart in that respect. For example... Christ commanded his disciples to flee from persecutors rather than letting those persecutors capture you and put you into prison. Well, that's the bottom left-hand side of the chart, right? That's a total avoidance. They're not getting any any kind of a relationship with the people who are pursuing them. Obviously, it's a, a legitimate corner to be on. If a relative demands that you choose between Christ and them... There is a competition of values, and you have to choose Christ and His values. So that's going to put you up on the top left-hand side of that chart, right? Um, and you should try to maintain the relationship, but there are situations where faithfulness to Christ will mean your competition. You've, it's going to be Christ winning or them winning. It's just, it just comes down to that. But there are many more opportunities for legitimate compromise or collaboration than many people realize. And when I say compromise in the middle there, I'm not talking about compromising the Bible. Uh, I'm talking about compromising your pride, your, your desires, and compromising to maybe some of the concerns uh, of the other person. We're going to be seeing in upcoming chapters that David was willing to compromise his own feelings, desires, and privileges in order to win other people if it was possible. Romans chapter 12, verse 18 says, if it is possible, so sometimes it's not, but if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And there will be times where we decide before God that winning an argument is just not that important in the overall scheme of things. Uh, we're just going to let the other person, we're just going to stop arguing, even if they interpret it that they've won the argument. Ha! So there. And uh, it just galls some people to let that happen, but the Bible says, you know, it's worthwhile, and you shouldn't let your pride rule you on that. Now, I guess the bottom line here is that even though Abner would not have been able to hap- help it, Even legitimate self-defense seemed to guarantee ongoing hatred with Joab, though not with David. So if he could have avoided the conflict, he would have. Okay, look at verse 24. Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner, and the sun was going down when they came to the hill of Ammah, which is before Gia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. Once Joab and Abishai caught up with the others and they came to where Asahel was lying, where everybody had stopped, they probably examined the body to make sure he was dead. And then Joab and Abishai led the charge into enemy territory seeking to capture Abner. And I don't in any way fault them for doing this. When you've got an aggressor uh, like Abner, the Bible allows you to deeply penetrate uh, into uh, their territory. I think it would have saved a lot of lives if in our war in Korea uh, we'd followed General Douglas MacArthur's policy and just gone in and invaded China where all the arms were coming. I think this policy would have helped save lives in Vietnam. It certainly would have saved lives in the war between the states if uh, General Robert E. Lee had been given permission to go ahead after the Battle of Bull Run and invade Washington, D.C. They could have stopped the war almost immediately with very little loss of life and negotiated uh, some kind uh, of a settlement. Um, And if Joab had followed standard protocol and had finished Abner's army off and captured Abner, I think it would have saved enormous numbers of lives. But here, for some reason, Joab responds with chivalry Believing Abner's sudden interest in brother not fighting brother. Verses 25 through 26. Now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on top of a hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? Now, those are rather hypocritical words to come from the lips of Abner for three reasons. First of all, he started the war earlier in the chapter. He didn't have any moral problems with brother fighting brother. Secondly, he didn't seem to have any qualms over those 24 men fighting for his entertainment. That was just pathetic. And then thirdly, we discover later... He had no plans on keeping to his side of the border. He was going to immediately start attacking David again. But when he's losing, he starts whining. Oh, brothers shouldn't be fighting with brothers. Okay, that's basically what he's asking. Joab somehow believes Abner. Rather than pressing for the advantage in a full surrender, which I think would have been the good thing here, verse 27 says, Joab said, As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. In other words, we wouldn't have quit till morning. We would have kept fighting till we had mopped uh, everything up. And I'm sure Joab regretted many times that he didn't do so. I've often wondered if Jefferson Davis regretted micromanaging Lee. Uh, but in verse 28, Joab calls a halt to hostilities. So Joab blew a trumpet, and all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan, and went through all Bithron, and they came to Mahanaim. Now, we soon discover that all Abner was interested in was in stopping the battle was to consolidate, regroup, and to go on the attack against Judah again. And it's sad but true that Christians will often do the same things in their squabbles. In marriages, there are truces that are called, But what do they do? They're just sweeping the dirt under the carpet, never dealing with the dirt. And so there's never an end to the hostilities. They go on year after year after year. And so while the Davids of this world have to learn to be gracious and forgiving, they cannot be naive. They cannot be doormats conflict is inescapable in this sinful world, and we ought not to shrink from conflict if God calls us to it. But it's got to be conflict on his terms, his ways, and for his reasons. And again, I believe Ken Sandy's book, uh, The Peacemaker, shows the godly parameters of what is legitimate conflict. And I think he does so brilliantly. The last point is simply the obvious observation that this truce solved nothing. And it solved nothing because the root issue of rebellion against God had never been dealt with in the heart of Abner. Abner knew that God had sworn to give the whole country to David. He had been there when Jonathan and Saul were talking about it. He knew. He knew Jonathan's desire that David take over the throne. He knew that Samuel had anointed David and that Samuel had prophesied he would be the king uh, later on. And yet he continues to fight against David with total rebellion. I mean, even the Amalekite knew when he brought his crown to David. He knew that David was going to be the next king. So take a look. uh, Flip one chapter forward. Take a look at chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. This is his angry debate. He's got no moral basis here because he's been sleeping with uh, the concubines of the king. He says, may God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Abner was one crafty fellow. He used Ishbosheth to give himself a powerful position. But once he realized at the end of seven and a half years that this is not a winnable war, he uses this argument with Ishbosheth as an excuse then to switch sides. But the point I don't want you to miss is that Abner knew all along that God had sworn to give the kingdom to David. And yet he's fighting against David anyway. It's willful rebellion against God's revelation. And that's hard to deal with in family, church, and state. It's often camouflaged as loyalty to God and to God's grace. But until the heart rebellion is dealt with, no one is safe from the threats of attacks. The feuds within families, the feuds within churches almost always come out of some form of rebellion to God and rebellion to human authority. That's at their root. Anyway, let's uh, read the remaining verses, beginning at verse 30. So Joab returned from pursuing Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing of David's servants 19 men and Asahel. 19 plus Asahel, is 20. The amazing thing is of the 20 people that died on Joab's side, more than half of them, 12 of them died as a result of the stupid contest that Joab agreed to in uh, verse 16. He didn't have to agree to that. Uh, the remaining eight's a pretty small number to lose concerning the losses for the Benjamites, but there was bitterness in Judah over the loss of Asahel. There's bitterness in Israel uh, over the loss of the Benjamites. And so, continuing to read in verse 31. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men, 360 men who died. Then they took up Asahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. The deaths of that day simply fueled the willingness of those men to continue to fight. Feuds never settle anything. They exacerbate the problem. And it wouldn't matter how many times David tried to put the feud to rest, Abner would stir it up. So let me emphasize again, this is a war of northern aggression. It was started not by David, it was started by Abner. It was not agitated by David, it was agitated by Abner. And yet he was at war. And in the same way, I would say, it doesn't matter how godly you may be, there is always going to be others who will agitate and who will try to pick fights. And that means you have no choice but to learn the principles of conflict. Sometimes that will mean you have to fight. Now, the Bible's okay with self-defense. Now, sometimes it will mean that you will try one of the other options on the, chart, the two charts that I've given to you. But in a sinful world, we must, we must be skilled at conflict resolution. It's unavoidable. And again, no matter where you are on those two charts, whether it's fleeing, fighting, collaborating, giving in, whatever, it's critical that you not bear grudges or give in to inward bitterness like Joab did. And Scripture gives you the tools to not get bitter. Even, even when people continue to do evil against you year after year, you don't have to get bitter. And again, with David and Joab, they are contrasted on that. Uh, incredible contrast. Um, David refused to allow Abner to control his heart by getting bitter, and that's exactly what happens when you guys get bitter. Somebody else is controlling your heart. That that, that there wouldn't be bitterness if they were not controlling your heart. Joab stewed and stewed, as we'll see, through those seven years, he nursed a grudge, he planned revenge until finally he had an opportunity to kill Abner, and he ended up being guilty of murder. Uh, David, on the other hand, was willing in the next chapter to take a risk uh, and he risked the right hand of fellowship in order to have peace. And it really was a risk, but it was a risk that he considered well worthwhile. He was a peacemaker and peacemakers are not wimps. If David was not such a good fighter, he would not have been able to be such a good peacemaker. I mean, just think of it even in terms of, of, of national policies. If you look in Deuteronomy, you'll see that when they talk about an aggressor nation attacking Israel, Israel was supposed to be armed to the teeth when they went to that city. And here is a massive army, and they says, we declare peace to you. Very interesting phrase. It's peace through strength. Otherwise, if you're unarmed, that aggressor nation is going to completely uh, take over you. Maybe that's one of the reasons why the cult was called the peacemaker. I don't know. Uh, But you know, in Aurora, Colorado. If somebody in that uh, place was, uh, had been allowed to have uh, a concealed carry weapon, uh, that man would not have killed so many people. So there is such a thing as a peace uh, through strength. Anyway, let me end by telling you the story behind one of the pictures in your outline. You maybe were wondering what that was at the bottom of your outline there, It's a picture of the door of reconciliation. If you go to uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral in Dublin, uh, Ireland, uh, you'll see that hanging on display uh, right now. Now, you'll notice, if you look at the picture, uh, in the middle of the door, there's a rectangular hole. It kind of looks hacked out in the center. And the story of that hole explains the Irish expression of chancing one's arm." In 1492, two prominent Irish families, the Ormonds and the Kildares, were embroiled in a bitter feud. Now the Ormonds eventually after a while were losing and they fled to the cathedral and they locked themselves in the chapel and that was the door to that chapel. Well the uh, Earl of Kildare laid siege to them to try to starve them out. But as the siege wore on, the Earl of Kildare began to be convicted that this, fu- uh, this uh, feuding was foolish and it was unchristian. I mean, both families were Christians. They both worshipped, actually, in the same church, and here they were trying to kill each other. He was very convicted by the Spirit of God that this was not right. And so uh, he yelled at the Earl of Ormond. He said, I want this feud to be over. Please come out. We'll end the feud. Well, the Earl of Ormond... He thought this was just treachery. He was not going to come out of that thing. He thought it was a trick. And so the Earl of Kildare grabbed a weapon. He chopped a hole in the door with it, and he thrust his arm through that hole. Now, he didn't know if Ormond would slice his arm off when he put his arm through there, but he offered a handshake of fellowship, of peace. And there was a tense moment as his arm was through there and nothing was happening But then finally, it was grabbed by the Earl of Ormond on the inside. The door was opened up, and they embraced each other, thus ending uh, their feud. And from Kildare's noble gesture of riskily putting his arm through the hole came the expression, chancing one's arm. Brothers and sisters, if you are in a feud with a fellow believer, I would urge you to do as David did in the next chapter and to chance your arm. There is a risk that it will metaphorically be cut off, the chance of more hurt and more emotional wounding and the risk of more grudges. But if Christians don't chance the arm in reaching out to each other, the senseless and the joyless feuds will continue to eat away at both of you, just like death and suffering and bitterness continued in chapter 3, verse 1. Now, don't be naive. I'm not calling you to be naive. But I am saying, say no to feuds... Say yes to the realistic opportunities for peacemaking that God might afford. And may God bless and prosper your efforts at resolving conflicts. Amen. Father God, we thank you that you include in Scripture even the ugly scenes of the sins of men. And uh, the rest of Scripture shows the answers to those ugly dynamics that go into conflict. I pray that understanding these dynamics, you would help us to avoid conflict and even to be peacemakers when we're not a part of the conflict, but uh, we uh, perhaps can step in and help others uh, to find peace in Jesus Christ. We thank you that Jesus is the Prince of Peace and that we're, uh, resolution of conflict seems absolutely impossible that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so I pray for your peace to rest upon this, your congregation. Do bless them, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.